one of the sort of minor sins that we have within the debriefing community is that sometimes we can conflate conversational artistry for clinical or educational impact, and they're not necessarily the same thing, are they? So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and this episode is the latest in our collaboration with Advances in Simulation, the free and open access simulation journal. And today, Ben Simon is going to be hosting an episode in which we're talking about the plus delta art of debriefing, both in a simulation context and in a clinical context. Now, the guests you're going to hear, I'm going to do a proper introduction for them. The first is Adam Cheng, well known to many of our simulcast listeners. He's a paediatric emergency physician from Alberta Children's Hospital in Calgary, Canada, uh, where he's the director of the KidSim uh, program and Aspire research program. And as we know, Adam has written extensively on debriefing as well as many other simulation topics. And the second guest that Ben is going to be talking with is Raj Kanth, who's a paediatrician at Barts Health in the UK. Uh, he's currently doing a PhD in simulation debriefing and he is uh, working also in teaching at the Sale Centre at Guy's and St Thomas's and his academic work is at the Faculty of Life Sciences and Medicine in King's College London where he works with Gabe Reedy who is indeed the editor-in-chief of Advances in Simulation. So I'll leave you to Ben's lovely interview with these two gentlemen and uh, think more about Plus Delta debriefing. Okay, so welcome back to Simulcast. I'm Ben Simon, and I'm joined by two very exciting colleagues today to talk about Plus Delta, both as a debriefing technique in simulation, as well as a technique for clinical reflection. Uh, so we're joined today by Dr. Adam Cheng and Dr. Raj Kanth. Uh, how are you guys going? Good. Good to be here. Very wonderful. Thanks for having me, Ben. Yeah, I'm really pumped. Uh, as uh, certainly Adam probably knows, this is a topic that I really like talking about for many reasons. Uh, and I think plus delta as a debriefing technique is kind of having a little bit of a renaissance or a uh, little bit of a nice time in the sun at the moment, thanks to the two papers that you guys have recently published. Uh, so the first being Embracing Informed Learner Self-Assessment During Debriefing, The Art of Plus Delta by Adam Cheng et al. in Advances in Simulation. And secondly, by the Dynamic Plus Delta, an agile debriefing approach centered around variable participant, faculty, and contextual factors uh, by Ranjev Kanth et al. and also in Advances in Simulation. Uh, so let's just jump right in and start talking about plus delta. Adam, what was sort of the background for the motivation for why you wrote this paper? Yeah, great question, Ben. I think I think sort of being involved in simulation over the past decade or so, what we've seen is um, sort of the emergence of a variety of different debriefing methods and frameworks. And, um, and I, I kind of get the sense that plus delta is sort of the underappreciated poor cousin of debriefing methods almost it's it's it the conceptually it's quite simple it seems easy to implement and maybe there's this misperception that because of its ease of implementation it's perhaps not as useful or not as impactful um as some of the other debriefing methods and conversational strategies that we see out there so you know our group sort of has been using 
plus delta for many, many years. And uh, as with all debriefing methods, we see that there are certain benefits as well as balanced by certain pitfalls. And so the key drive to writing this paper was to highlight the use of plus delta, specifically learner self-assessment and promoting the value of learner self-assessment in debriefing. And then just sharing, you know, what role it is and how we, how, what role it plays and how we can go about blending or merging this method with some of the other conversational strategies available to us. Yeah, I love, love that you highlight that sometimes this has been a somewhat undervalued technique. And I think uh, one of the sort of minor sins that we have within the debriefing community is that sometimes we can conflate conversational artistry for a clinical or educational impact. And they're not necessarily the same thing, are they? Um, so I'm really looking forward to exploring this more, but I'm wondering if we can just go back to basics first. And could you talk us through what your definition of a plus delta is for listeners who might not have read or heard much about it? Yeah, so essentially uh, a plus delta approach to debriefing uh, describes a strategy where uh, participants are asked to reflect on the entire simulation event or portions thereof. Um, for the purposes of assessing their either their individual or collective performance. And this is simply triggered by one or two questions. Typically, the facilitator will ask, you know, so, you know, what do you think went well in the event? And, you know, what would you do differently or improve on next time? So those are the questions. And then, of course, you know, the primary goal is to engage them to reflect on their own performances for the purposes of generating essentially two lists one list of things that went really well and another list of things that they thought they could improve on for the, for the next time they're engaged in, in that specific type of uh, management or, or performance. So it seems pretty simple at baseline. Uh, what went well, what didn't go well, or what would you change? Uh, mm. But your paper actually teases out a lot of detail and a lot of the subtle choices that we can sometimes be unconsciously making uh, right. when we're actually doing a plus delta as a conversational strategy. Um, right. What kind of the key sort of subtle decisions that go into uh, running this as a conversational technique? Well, I, I think as a facilitator, one of the key things to keep in mind is that there is a body of literature that suggests that learner self-assessment is in many cases inaccurate. And so there's a body of literature that suggests that the more novice you are, the more likely you are to overestimate your performance. And that's just not in you know K to 12 education, but also amongst healthcare professionals as well. And so, so I've often been asked the question, well, what's the value of engaging learners in a self-assessment of their performance when they are likely to overestimate their performance? And so the typical response that I would give is, well, as a facilitator, wouldn't you be curious to know and interested to know if your learners thought that they overperformed? If they thought that they did much better than they actually did, wouldn't you want to know of that sort of perception mismatch between you and your learners? Um, because that would certainly be a key topic of discussion, right? You'd want to work towards addressing that misperception. And so I kind of see the plus delta as uh, I think in the paper we wrote about it as viewing it as kind of analogous to uh, a diagnostic biopsy where we're just taking a little piece and just getting a sense of, you know, how the learners thought they performed, a snapshot, generating one or two lists, 
And then from that, that serves as a jumping off point to dive in deeper to better understand um, either their underlying cognitive rationale or frames for certain behaviors, or perhaps just directly closing performance gaps through directed feedback or exploring the impact of other elements within the room or teamwork on their, on their specific performance. So really it's a jumping off point. In the paper, we describe several different things for, for facilitators to be wary of. The first thing is sort of managing perception mismatches. So when your perception of their performance doesn't match their perception of their own performance. Or sometimes learners may actually perceive their performance, their collective team performance differently as well, right? So maybe you and Vic are in a resuscitation. She thought that the teamwork was outstanding and you thought it could have been better. So that's kind of an interesting topic for discussion. Why is there a mismatch there? And so I think that's one thing that we encourage facilitators to be wary of is perception mismatches, either between the facilitators and the learners or amongst the learners. Uh, the second thing is the importance of highlighting positive performance. So oftentimes I'll, I'll hear our novice facilitators say, oh, well, they did everything great. So there was really nothing much to talk about. When I did the plus delta, they just put everything in the plus column and I didn't have much else to add. Well, the thing that we have to sort of, the thing I always keep in mind is that just because one or two members of the team um, are able to highlight things that went well doesn't necessarily mean that all members of the team are able to appreciate how and why that particular aspect of performance was, you know, done optimally. And so it is worthwhile to sort of dig a little bit deeper to better understand how, why, perhaps even when performance should be optimized. And, um, and that also allows you as a facilitator to sort of add your own little pearls and gems. And then the last thing I'll sort of talk a little bit about just relates to um, this whole use of the question. You know, when I first introduced the question, I asked it in a double-barreled fashion, which is the positive and the delta question back-to-back. -back. And what we found that you can, if you ask it that way, that gives the learners the option of sort of talking about the positives or talking about the deltas. But if you separate them, there are certain benefits as well. And so... Um, we think that you know asking them in a double barrel fashion back to back gives some the learners some freedom, but many times there's sort of this negativity bias where the learners tend to talk about things that they did they want to change more, and as a result, the entire discussion is around change and not really sort of celebrating wins or successes and so asking the questions in a single barrel method affords the facilitator a little bit more control over the conversation. Uh, and being able to direct the conversation either towards the positives first or towards the deltas first, whatever he or she wishes. Thanks so much. So I just want to uh, kind of recap because there was so much wisdom in the, those uh, reflections. So we've talked about plus delta as a conversational technique to run during a debrief, not necessarily as a whole structure of the debrief, but as a specific tool that we might use as a sort of punch di biopsy that gives us rich diagnostic information about how the learners see their own performance and how the learners see each other's performance as well and that their assessment of that performance may be in synchrony or very asynchronous to our perception as facilitators. And then I'm hearing that you've highlighted that 
uh, those perception mismatches can then be rich data to then act on further in the conversation and either dive deep or provide sort of micro teaching moments, um, but also as a skill to unpack positive performance uh, by identifying uh, successes and explaining why they're successes so that hopefully those participants can replicate that in other clinical kind of situations. Um, and then in particular, that single versus doubled barreled questions as a strategy really highlights to me that this is a seemingly simple technique with a number of actually quite impactful choices running beneath the surface that can really change the flow of the conversation. Um, have you ended up being more of a single or a double-barreled man in general now? I, I think it just depends. It depends on, you know, what I'm trying to achieve. I'm going to got to read the room a little bit and understand who my participants are. You know, sometimes it depends on, you know, how they performed and how they did and what we we're trying to achieve. So I think, I, I think every debriefing is different, and I think we need to adopt methods that allow us to be a little bit more flexible and adaptable. Uh, thanks so much. And I guess my other question would be, one thing that's really uh, highlighted by me by this paper is that in some ways, plus delta is a bit of an egalitarian technique. Uh, and it seems to be moving uh, some of the responsibility from the facilitator to both own performance improvement, but also to own reflection as sort of the source of truth, more to sort of teaching teams to own their own performance reflections and potentially uh, own those reflections better in future learning conversations as well. Right, right, for sure. I mean, it definitely forces them to reflect um, either on the individual performance on a team and then it sets the stage, you know, for further discussion to dig a little bit deeper, you know, team reflexivity, so to speak, as, as we've learned about from some of our colleagues in the simulation community. Mm. Because I almost feel like sometimes a bit like when we teach teach registrars or trainees that you learn by coming to watch a PowerPoint presentation by your consultant, we're essentially replicating that sometimes in a sim if we teach people that the debriefer is the, the key source of knowledge and feedback. Right, right. So thank you so much for that, Adam. I'm wondering uh, now we might... Uh, use that sort of framework in thinking about plus delta to talk a little bit more about how plus delta can help us for clinical debriefing specifically. So Raj, you've recently published a paper on this within sort of a pandemic context. Where were you at the time and what were you sort of doing that uh, caused you to turn to this technique? Yeah, thanks, Ben. So, um, so I was part of the education team, which was responsible for training staff who were entering one of the field hospitals that was set up in London, so the Nightingale Hospital in London. Um, and what we found very quickly is that, um, it, you know, so it's a very large hospital which needed staffing by lots of different people at different skill levels from, you know, very senior ITU nursing staff um, and consultants all the way down to very important administrative uh, roles as well. Um, and, and so what we realised is actually, along with having a, a hospital, you need the education to go along with it. Um, and that actually comes before you let the, you know, the team uh, enter the clinical workspace. So that's why um, an entire training um, uh, academy as such was set up. It was, a, it was very large. We, we initially started off at um, the site of the hospital. So the hospital was on the ground floor uh, and we had the entire first floor. Uh, but we very quickly outgrew that within the first couple of weeks and we had to move um, to a, a large indoor arena, the O2, 
um, over in Greenwich. So, um, and, and we had the, the entire space there, which was fantastic. And uh, the simulation was one component of the education setup. There was lots of different workstations and it was a, a full day course as such. Um, and I was primarily involved um, in the simulations, um, which were running throughout the day. Yeah. So it sounds quite phenomenal. You essentially got a debriefing stadium. This was a big project, a big, big sort of uh, educational and translational uh, project in the context of a, a worldwide pandemic. So pretty high stakes, very rapid change and a huge sort of delivery vehicle and also a huge number of staff that you're taking through there. Uh, so what was it sort of about the dynamic plus delta or the plus delta that, that drew you to that as a strategy for your faculty? Yeah, so as you just said, you know, a huge number of staff coming in um, and you know, it's hard enough trying to get uh, high-skilled simulation faculty, um, you know, on a daily basis sometimes, um, especially because we know there's such turnaround. Often, you know, individuals undertake fellowships, for example, for a year or two, uh, and then may continue that in a local area. Um, and all of the local hospitals would need their own education as well. So we had to rely on what we could get. And we had a we had a mix of very senior um, educators who are well versed in lots of different debriefing models um, to a different spectrum, which was um, clinical educators who were who were excellent on teaching on the wards and in the clinical workspace, but may have not done as much simulation training. And so we really had to choose something which uh, was really accessible for everyone. Um, and the plus delta seemed uh, the most appropriate. Um, and it was it was decided in advance that that's the uh, the model that would be used and it was also the model that was used in the clinical workspace after shifts at the nightingale so teams would exit uh, and use a plus delta so there was a degree of continuity there as well um, and initially you know the plus delta started off very much um, as Adam said you know a, a plus phase and a, and a delta change phase but we very quickly realized that uh, this wasn't catering for um, the staff who we were training you know, we were training individuals, as I said, um, from senior ITU staff um, all the way to individuals who had never worked in healthcare. So we're talking about volunteers who who were actors or teachers or musicians um, who were going to be working in the Nightingale Hospital. Um, so we really had to adapt what we were delivering to cater for the for the different needs. But the court core element of the module was really making sure we could deliver the individual learning needs and uh, focus on things like roles and responsibilities, making sure we had enough time to explore emotions. Um, and then also considering psychological safety, we knew that a lot of individuals, you know, this was in um, March, April, May last year. So at the beginning of the pandemic where everything was new, you know, anxiety, fear was was quite new for the entire population. But for staff going into the hospital, it was a different level of fear. And we had to recognise that and actually um, ensure that we could, especially for those who had never worked in healthcare, ensure that we could um, leave space and time for emotions to to surface and explore those um, and and to normalise them to, the, to a certain extent, because we as faculty, we shared those anxieties and fears. We'd never been in a pandemic. We've never opened a field hospital. We've never trained in an OT arena. And we certainly didn't know, you know, all of these new um, protocols and processes um, 
that we had to implement. Um, and, and so there's a degree of faculty showing vulnerability and, and that in itself, you know, we know um, fosters psychological safety. So there's over time, a lot of these small elements we were introducing over time. Um, and, and I've labelled them in the paper as dynamic elements. And one of the reasons why I've labelled them as dynamic is because of the variable time. So if we had more time, a lot of more of these elements could be uh, introduced. Some of the plus sections could be expanded using some of the strategies that Adam spoke about as well. So um, deconstructing good behaviour, especially because the groups would have different competence levels. So um, an individual who may say that was a very good handover um, it, it may not be seen by others. So it was important for us to deconstruct good performance as well. Can we just zoom in that for a second? Because I think this is sort of an important distinction that I hadn't highlighted clearly enough earlier. So in terms of uh, the specific characteristics of the dynamic plus delta, um, to me, it almost seemed like a little bit of a deconstructed pearls in that you had many options, but it wasn't as maybe constrictive as, as some other models or as set um so are you able to talk our listeners through what dynamic plus delta sort of really means for you yeah so i think you're absolutely right ben it was uh so different available options um available to to the debriefers um depending on the available time uh depending on the groups um so uh and their learning needs and also depending upon um changing um, clinical need. So what I mean by that is um, we learnt rapidly, as we still do, uh, the pathology of COVID and treatment options, you know, things like um, proning, for example, how useful that was, uh, other aspects such as uh, escalating quickly, um, knowing when to escalate treatment. So all of these things change quite quickly. So we had to be responsive to that. So there were lots of different reasons to adapt the debrief on the day um, it may have even been participant numbers. Some days we trained, I think, uh, a few of the days it was over 200 individuals in one day. And then in some days it would be as little as maybe 20, 30, 40 individuals. So time would really vary. Um, and so the dynamic elements really were based upon those factors. And it was anything from spending more time exploring emotions, allowing time for reactions, especially for those who would never worked in healthcare. Um, some of the more specific dynamic elements was introducing short micro-teachings. So again, if things were fed back from the clinical environment that we wanted to ensure staff who were being newly trained needed to know, um, we would include short micro teachers on those topics. Um, we uh, was was also there was a great emphasis on roles and responsibilities. So again, um, for the, for those staff who who may have worked in healthcare before, and so I'm thinking about the ward doctors who were responsible for. Uh, four to six patients, um, so a small bay, um, they wouldn't be experienced ITU staff, but they will be experienced healthcare staff. So they would know when to escalate or recognise a deteriorating patient. And we wanted to make sure they knew when to escalate and how to escalate. What is the processes you go through? Where is the telephone? Who do you call? When do you put out an emergency buzzer? All of these um, important details in a new environment so that was a an, an important element um, which was dropped in for for particular groups. Some some of the other things that we which are labelled as dynamic elements, um, I suppose one of them is something called what I la I've labelled as targeted application, um, and that really was trying to get some of the staff to practice some of the 
conversations we'd been discussing. So things like handover, um, we would often talk about an SBAR handover as, in a, as a very good tool for acute escalation. And we may talk about it, but there's a difference to practicing it. And we didn't want participants to go and practice it for the first time in the clinical environment with a sick patient. We wanted them to practice it there and then. So we would do that in the debrief, um, sitting around in a circle. We would just say, let's role play that now. Uh, and we'd often do that if we had uh, more time as well. So th- for me, those are some of the more dynamic elements. And as I said, they did constantly change as such um, th- throughout the nearly two months or so we were there. So I'm right. So if this was sort of a, a song uh, for go with me on the analogy, but like this is a song, your foundational chords for your debriefs is basically your what went well and what should we change? Uh, but because of the wide variety of artists you have running this conversation, you actually gave a lot of different choices for their variations on a theme that they could go into a verse and really jump into actually what this group needs right now is teaching, what this group needs right now is rehearsal, uh, what this group needs right now is an opportunity to just express emotion and sense their community in this moment. And that however that really plays out within that foundational structure of what went well and what didn't go well is really going to be up to our faculty and their ability to sense what this team needs and what data is coming to us from daily updates, et cetera, from, from faculty and how the clinical space is heading on the floor. Very much so, exactly, Ben. So um, the, the framework really was a plus and delta and it was what would surface in uh, the plus, you know, it, are there things that participants have surfaced um, which resonate with some of the core roles and responsibilities that we need to cover? In which case, let's tackle that now and let's expand that little segment of uh, these are the things that you did well and let's turn it into we can tick off that one of those learning objectives. Um, in terms of Delta, you know, what are the things that they want to change? Often it may have been things like, well, I'm scared, I'm petrified. I, I, I don't know how to do this. You know, I don't know how to escalate. And we would use that as an opportunity to explore some of those emotions, normalize those and, and say to them, look, it's, it's OK not to know some of these things, but these are the things you can do. So thanks. So um, I guess one thing that was really highlighted in the article that often isn't highlighted is the importance of psych safety for learners, but in, more, more potentially inversely, the importance of psych safety for faculty, particularly in this shared experience of uncertainty and rapid change Uh, and you've mentioned already some of the techniques that you've used to sort of foster psychological safety such as shared vulnerability from faculty about this level of uncertainty but your article mentions a lot about sort of the specific strategies that you identified that were helpful for longitudinal psych safety for your faculty are you able to tell us a little bit more about that for me you have to have psychological safety to get meaningful learning and when we are talking about completely new topics in a new environment it really needs to be there so for the learners uh, we obviously set the scene in terms of uh, always doing introductions even if we were only having 10 minutes per group 15 minutes per group for debriefing we would make make sure we would still do quick introductions we would do things like physical safety um, uh, arranging everyone in a circle but enough social distancing uh, simple things like hand sanitizer which just shows that we care which we did um, but we respect them as well, and we want to keep them safe as well as keeping us safe. Um, and and given that time for emotions, as I uh, as I already said, and a lot of the threats to psychological safety, a lot of the uh, fears and anxiety during the pandemic were obviously echoed by faculty as well. And and our faculty cohort, um, many didn't know one another. There was probably a handful of individuals I knew beforehand, but 
we we were a core group of maybe 15, 20 individuals, and then we had sometimes an extra 10, 15 joining um, unannounced sometimes on any given day. So we had to quickly realize how do we create safety within our group? Because actually, we were feeling scared, anxious, vulnerable. We may not have known protocols and processes because they were changing every day, every few hours. And and so what evolved, I mean, it, it, it happened quite naturally and happened from day one, actually, was, was a set routine. And I think that's something which was quite comforting. So we would always start the day with a faculty meeting. So, so there was actually two faculty meeting, meetings. There was a, a Nightingale education team fa- faculty meeting for all of the education teams. And then we as a simulation group would go away and have a second uh, faculty meeting. And it was really just say, how are you doing? How are things? How was last night? Um, any technical issues, any issues about protocol processes, any issues with the new scenarios, if we had to adapt them or change them. Um, and it was also an opportunity for everyone to say hello and reintroduce themselves, especially in the first few weeks we had new members joining virtually every day. I um, want to emphasize, and, and it's close to me, is that if we can maximize psychological safety in, in the educational environment, there's a hope some of it will continue in the clinical environment as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think we're, we're hoping there's that psych safety as a reverse transcript transcript days for uh, uh, psych safety in clinical practice. Uh, and I think uh, I know that Eve uh, Purdy is certainly doing some research on that at the moment. Um, so, look, we've, we've talked a lot about uh, how Plus Delta and its simplicity and flexibility was a really nice match for meeting the needs of a very diverse faculty with, you know, a, a relatively shallow on-ramp, on-ramp for training and familiarity as a technique, uh, and as well as its ability to uh, be simple and uh, sort of easy to take on. And so I'm wondering now if we could move away from, you know, how that impacted that moment and the training within the O2 stadium. I just want to ask you, Raj, you know, what of those habits and techniques that you learned in that time do you think will continue to impact the way that you train in the future if you have less of a sort of massive acute sudden need like a global pandemic? I think, I, I guess for me, I've, I've always, uh, much like how Adam was saying, I, th- I think plus Delta doesn't necessarily get the limelight it should deserve because often it's seen as a superficial model. Yet I think um, both Adam and I, I would, would strongly argue that some of the strategies you can use, you can actually go really deep. And I think from my experience with the Nightingale, combined with that philosophy, it's what I try to impart on other faculty, some of the more junior staff to say, hey, look, this is a model you can use and don't always assume it's superficials. We've used it in these different areas. And it works and it works in these different ways. So uh, in a way, that's how I'm continuing the journey. Great. So we've got sort of a, a reframe from, the, you know, things have to be complex and uh, artistic or uh, therefore that means they're good versus actually this is a beautiful, easy to use technique that can still give you rich data. Uh, that is just because it's relatively easy to learn doesn't mean it's not impactful both in sim and in clinical debriefing as well. So um, I want to move the conversation now a little bit to where to from here. We've talked about the sort of micro aspects of the structure and strategy of uh, plus delta as a technique. And then we've talked about how that impacts at a macro level, uh, how we can help train faculty and how they can retain flexibility and uncertainty. And I'm wondering, Adam, have you got any perspectives on whether we're any closer to measuring the impact of specific techniques? 
Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question, Ben. I think I think it's tough. I mean, I think it's really tough to measure the impact of a specific debriefing framework or conversational strategy on learning outcomes. I think there's just so much that influences performance. And even if you're able to say that there was a difference or an improvement in immediately after a conversation, how are you supposed to know if that improvement was related to the performance during the event itself or during the debriefing? And, and if it's to both, what, relatively speaking, how much is assigned to each of those components? I think it's really difficult. I think, um, I, I think we can move a little bit more away from worrying too much about the impact, as we know that reflecting on performance and having great conversations about performance uh, actually helps, right? And I think we believe that as a community of educators. Uh, let's understand better what we're doing during those conversations and let's be a little bit more thoughtful about how we shape those conversations to ensure that the lessons learned are translated over to the real clinical environment. And so I'll give you an example. So for example, for Plus Delta, the one of the things that we learned as we were doing the research and looking through the literature to prepare this paper was there's this notion of sort of informed learner self-assessment which is in so self-assessment that's either informed by external data or objective data or internal data which is individuals own perceptions and opinions and when self-assessment is informed by objective external data it tends to be more accurate and so i know personally as an educator i don't often do that that much and there's opportunity for me to do that more often so for example you know if we were to use a checklist that has very um, explicit, discrete performance criteria that we introduce to the learners ahead of time, maybe during the pre-briefing, that might help them identify what sort of aspects of performance that they're trying to achieve. They go about do the simulation and then in debriefing, we take that checklist out again and allow them to self-reflect on their performance relative to the criteria that are explicitly set out in the checklist, right? And so just being aware of what they're trying to achieve and being very explicit about that, I think help will help to, you know, help to promote more effective and accurate learner self-assessment, which in turn will help to, you know, promote, you know, the learner's capacity for, for learning within the moment. And so I think this, you sort of throw that out there as an example for an opportunity for us to, to, to dig a little deeper and try different things and help us integrate external data, whether it's the use of checklists or the use of video or objective data collected by technology, for example, you know, defibrillators that collect CPR quality. Um, can we integrate some of that data into our debriefings to help to emphasize the or amplify the impact of these learner self-assessments? Love it. Yeah. So that, that importance of plus delta being that diagnostic biopsy. But then if we pair that with objective or subjective data, we can potentially get a richer understanding of where we're at and how we need to change our performance. Um, I'll might move to you, Raj, in terms of where you see the next step for this in scholarship and for practice. Any thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Ben. So, I mean, I agree with Adam. I, I don't necessarily think... Um, looking for outcome measures as such um maybe a useful endeavor in 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 the sense we we know debriefing works um one of the things uh, that i've alluded to um over the last half hour or so is is the unique experience of the nightingale so one of the 
research avenues we're undertaking or in the middle of at the moment is um, undertaking a, a phenomenological uh, research, so um, trying to understand the experience of faculty at the Nightingale. Um, so I'm leading on that project as well, because actually it was such a unique experience and, and the plus delta and how we used it, the entire faculty um, working together every single day, six, seven days a week. Um, it, it was a different experience and, and we, I wanted to explore it. I want to explore it and I want to share that, I guess, as well. So, so for me, that's the next step is, is saying, hey, this is the approach that we used and this is, this, this, this is our experience and share that, share that with the community. Thanks so much. Uh, and Adam, if you've got any advice for uh, debriefers or educators or clinicians who are thinking about incorporating Plus Delta more heavily into their practice in the future. Yeah, I guess my main advice would be try it out, right? Give it a go. If, if you've never done it before and you're hesitant, don't worry. Um, just try it out and, and see how it goes for you. I sort of, you know, for our novice facilitators, we always encourage them to try as they're learning how to debrief, we always encourage them to try at least one thing new each debriefing. Work on one thing. Fantastic. And any thoughts from you, Raj, before I close and summarize? Yeah, just to echo much of what Adam said is, is just try it. But uh, for me, one of the one of the things I always say to the team is um, don't just stop when um, you ask what went well or what do you want to change. Probe deeper. Always probe deeper. Ask why, why, why or how. Uh, those are the questions for me because you move beyond just some of the surface level um, to, to to much deeper uh, perspectives. And I think for me, that's where learning occurs by sharing perspectives. Thanks so much. So just, just to wrap up the conversation, we've, we've talked about Plus Delta uh, in depth today, and these are certainly two of my favorite papers of the year. So thank you so much, both of you, for writing them. Um, I think the key take-homes for me are that Plus Delta is a uh, seemingly simple technique that we can sometimes heavily underestimate, uh, but that when a simple tool is used with skill, it can lead to uh, a rich set of data and impact for both faculty and participants wherever they are in either the educational or translational or clinical space. Uh, and I think to me, it really highlights again that we, you know, a little bit of a call to continuously challenge and reflect on dogma, whatever specialty or um, area of expertise we're in, in terms of rethinking and challenging that sometimes the things that we value aren't necessarily the things that might be the best fit for the problem that we have. And we've had such a lovely uh, description today of how the the sort of fundamental uh, infrastructure of a post-delta question actually beautifully matched the needs of a unexpected problem on a very, very large scale that you've described, Raj. So just want to thank you both for your time. I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to talking to you guys again. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for listening to Simulcast.